I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, Y. Kellerman, Saadaid13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our series on Israel-Palestine and the Gaza War with special guest Itan Nishin, a freelance journalist and contributor to the Israeli publication Haaretz. We'll be discussing the doctrine of Netanyahu, from his attacks on the press to his embrace of figures like Elon Musk and the Israeli far right. We'll also get into his critique of the international left, which he argues hasn't shown enough solidarity with the Israeli left. Now, I realize these are all controversial topics, but I do believe that the perspective that he's going to give in the conversation you're about to hear is at least worth listening to. We don't necessarily agree on everything, but I did want my listeners to hear it. I think it is useful to at least understand the Israeli left perspective, uh, whether you're a person that supports something like Jewish Voice for Peace or a liberal Zionist, or an anti-Zionist, a pro-Palestinian activist, etc., etc. So hopefully you'll find this conversation fruitful. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Itan Nechin. Welcome to Parallax Views, guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with. He's a freelance journalist and a regular contributor to uh, Ritz, and he's also had uh, articles, I believe, in the New York Times, Time Magazine, The Independent, 
possibly some few a uh, few new publications coming up here. Uh, Itan Neshin, uh, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I guess where I wanted to lead with this conversation, I was telling you uh, off air that we just had this visit that Elon Musk made uh, to Israel, speaking with uh, Netanyahu and having a private tour, speaking with Isaac Herzog. And I was kind of disturbed by it on multiple levels because he's said very anti-Semitic things in recent memory, you know, less than a month ago, uh, pushing, you know, uh, the theory of white genocide and blaming uh, Jews for it, putting Jews at the center of that conspiracy. Then he also, I think, said some things that I found kind of disturbing about Palestinians, the need to re-educate Palestinians or reprogram them. And I just find him to be an odious figure all around, whether you're Jewish, Palestinian, or any other group. So I find his visiting Israel... Um, off-putting. Uh, how do you feel about Elon Musk's visit? Um, well, I think it encapsulates uh, Netanyahu's um, tactics and foreign policy for the past decade. Um, I think we've we've all we all remember Netanyahu uh, going to Congress, uh, speaking against the Iran nuclear deal. Um, behind Obama's back. Um, I think Netanyahu over the years, by embedding himself within the GOP, um, has fostered a base of right to right wing, to conspiratorial right wing, to uh, Christian evangelicals, because Netanyahu and Israel have losing have been losing um, mainstream Democrats and mainstream America um, start from, um, you know, his second tenure from 2009 um, was basically death of the two-state process. Um, And, uh, you know, I think Netanyahu realized that it won't be sustainable for another you know, generation. So he and his emissaries um, have been seeking, you know, their base other, otherwise. So we've seen in the opening of the, uh, you know, U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, Pastor John Hagee speak, right? Um, who is a blatant anti-Semite who thinks all Jews are going to go to hell um, and believes in the rapture and all these nice things. Uh, but for Netanyahu and his base, and settler base, especially the settlers of even before, realize the potential in Christian evangelism. Um, for him, it doesn't matter. They're for him, they're useful idiots um, who will fund his project and fund the the settler project. Um, as Elon Musk is concerned, um, it's the same the same thing. It's about. PR and power, and it doesn't matter how blatantly anti-Semitic he is or what he fosters or the kind of um, forces he unleashed on his now revamped you know, platform, um, as long as he falls in line with the Netanyahu doctrine, um, with saying that if you write, if you tweet out 
from the river to the sea will block you. That's good enough for Netanyahu. Um, Netanyahu is, again, he's only speaking to that inverse Trump base, as it were, um, because he knows he lost uh, mainstream America. What's scary to me about it is, you know, I, I think it's, I think someone like Elon Musk is putting diaspora uh, Jews at risk uh, with his sort of anti-Semitic rhetoric and the things he's promoting. I don't know. Would you agree with that? Um, for sure. I mean, first of all, to backtrack, I think one Netanyahu did is um, reframe what being, quote unquote, pro-Israel is. If 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, pro-Israel meant, you know, believing in a homeland for the Jews, supporting broad, you know, broad support, but broad solidarity, uh, supporting whatever the White House uh, was putting up, whether it's, uh, you know, Clinton's two states or even until Bush, you know, that was pro-Israel. Basically, Netanyahu reframed what being pro-Israel means, which pro-Israel now means being pro-right-wing, pro-Netanyahu, pro-settlements. If you're not that, you are anti-Israel, right? Anything that um, that beyond that is you're considered an Israeli enemy, you're considered, uh, quote-unquote, non-friend of the Jewish people, which uh, for Netanyahu is surrogates, um, diaspora Jews are mostly because they're Democrats and because they have more Democratic views are um, dispensable. And they are, in the best case, they are ignorant. Um, in the worst case, they are uh, enemy of Israel. Um, I think it was Naftali Bennett who said that um, the the real existential threat to Israel wasn't Iran, but assimilation and diaspora, you know, jury. Um, Israel as a state um, does not recognize uh, the multitude and the diverse um, communities of Jewish diaspora. Um, they never have. Um, we seen that evident in, you know, the the Western Wall um, and women's prayer. Um, I don't. I think it's a not even calculated risk, but um, Netanyahu doesn't. Even though he likes to uh, frame himself as a protector of Israel and the Jewish people, he doesn't give. A rat's ass about diaspora Jews, and he's willing to put them at risk for his own for his own um, program. Um, and yes, and what Elon Musk and what Trump before him did, I think they're kind of a one and the same in that regard. Um, cheap populists who are looking for brand attention, right? Um, they don't have any scruples or ideology, really. Uh, they just want to sell their brand. Um, it's concerning. Elon Musk is concerning as an uh, the, the American policy failure, right? Uh, that you have this individual 
who is treated like a world leader um, and that gets private tours from from prime ministers and the fact that he's putting that his platform is uh, disseminating anti-Semitism and hatred, Islamophobia, et cetera, et cetera. That's, you know, again, an American policy failure. Netanyahu using that, that's just, again, part of, part of his long-term um, program of uh, forsaking the desperate Jews for his narrow Orthodox base in Israel. If you could, could you discuss uh, what you know about the political situation in Israel? I believe you're you're based in New York, but I, I think you have a good understanding of the yeah. political situation in Israel. Um, yeah, I'm based in New York. Um, been here for ten years. Um, the political situation is that I think it's it's you know October seventh seemed like a decade ago, right? Uh, for a lot of us who lost friends and family, um, but for public opinion, you know, um, it got buried under the horrible, horrific bombardment of Gaza and, you know, tens of thousands of lives that were lost there, right? So it's 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 even harder to us to imagine that horror of that day and, and, and that's still going on, right? Uh, just today I saw... Um, someone that was considered missing that today his family was uh, officially uh, they let them know that the, he was found dead uh, or his remains right um, so the Saharas so of, of October 7th are still reverberating politically um, it's almost unfathomable to think that before October 7th for almost a year millions and millions of people took to the streets every Saturday evening Everyday Israelis, uh, from you know working class to upper middle class, um, calling for democracy, whatever that meant. The, that word was you know was complex, right? Um, it didn't center the occupation. Um, it didn't center a lot of systematic failures of Israeli society, but the unpopularity of, of Netanyahu was already low. Um, his government was an accident. You know, it took five elections in four years for him to get the lucky configuration. Um, and it was the most extreme right, racist, murderous. And we've seen that with statements from his government, right? Amichai um, Eliyahu, the minister of even a Jewish legacy or whatever, some offer that he made, Netanyahu made for himself to please uh, the base, saying that um, Israel needs to drop an atomic bomb on Gaza, right? Um, ben Gvir, who incited against Rabin and is now the police minister. Um, even even real quick, if I could, even someone yeah. like um, Bezalel Smotrich, um you know, I saw recently that he was saying there needs to be a uh, a denazification of the West Bank, and I thought to myself, you know, it's it's eerily similar to what Putin said about why Ukraine needed to be invaded. You know, it's, 
It's not it's it's not eerily similar. So it's uh, totally similar. Um, I think in 2017, Smotrich, who also got arrested um, on Jewish terrorism charges, by the way, for uh, stealing 700 liters of gasoline to use against the military uh, during the during uh, the withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Um, Smotrich in 2017, I think he wrote what he calls uh, which is basically plan uh, uh, when, plan to d- defeat Palestine, basically to expel, to um, erode any hope of Palestinian uh, self-determination. Um, like Putin, he doesn't think um, Palestine or the Palestinian people are real, just like Putin doesn't really think the Ukrainian people are real. Um, he has a doctrine um, of ethnic cleansing, of suppression, of violence, to quash permanently any hope for a Palestinian self-determination. So when he says uh, Gaza needs to be need to denat to need denatify. Gaza, um, basically, that's a euphemism for, um, you know, basically quash Palestinians. Um, And we've been seeing that in his policies in the West Bank, which he's hardly in charge of, right? Um, We've seen the uptick in violence and and murder in the West Bank um, by him and Ben Gvir's policies since October 7th. I'm curious when it comes to uh, these sort of far-right figures like Smotrich and uh, Ben-Giver, how did it get from, you know, a point where, I mean, in the 90s, we had people like Baruch Goldstein who committed terror attacks, but now you literally have people like Ben-Giver and Smotrich in ministerial positions. Uh, How did it reach that point? Because I I was speaking to... um, the Holocaust historian Omar Bartov, and he said to me, "It's almost like Netanyahu created a um, a sort of golem, and it's become this out of control thing, and it needs to be deactivated." And he's referring there to uh, figures like Ben Giver and um, and Smotrich. Do you think that is the case? I mean, what what will it take to deal with uh, these things? I think that is a case. Um, actually, my first ever column for Aritz. <laughs> Well, I think four years ago, five years ago now, when Netanyahu first toyed with the idea of um, of uh, having Ben Gvir and Smotrich collaborate, but they weren't separate parties, right? Ben Gvir was considered beyond the pale and a Khanist, and you know, well, Netanyahu said, "I'll never sit with him," right? He's uh, anathema. And then the his corruption trials, you know, started, and he needed to secure his political future. And that means strengthening the far right. Um, at that point, I compared him, you know, Netanyahu is a history buff. He reads history. He likes to compare himself to Churchill, right? Um, in my column, I suggested that it wasn't Churchill that he had reminiscent of, but Milosevic, who, again, like if, Botov said um, he 
you know, created these forces or use these extreme right forces uh, that he thought he could control. Like Assad, the father in Syria in the 70s, right? He thought to, for uh, after the pan-Arabist dream was kind of washed, he was like, okay, I'll use, you know, resistance. And he strengthened these fringe groups that in the end he lost control over. Um, I think that's the case. But I think it's also... Netanyahu is a mastermind of that, but credit with credit is due. Uh, the set, settlement project um, and the settler of leadership for over 30 years now have realized that by embedding themselves in the mainstream, they could control the narrative, they can control um, who's in power. Um, and you know, Oslo was a big blow for them. The withdrawal from Gaza was a, a traumatic blow from them because I think, according to Paul, I can't remember, um, but I think like some sort of like 67% of Israelis supported the withdrawal uh, when the settlers in, in Gush Katif in Gaza were protesting and barricading themselves. Israelis stayed at home and watched on TV. They realized that Nobody likes them. They're a fringe group. They look weird. Um, and over the past 20 to 30 years, they have been embedding themselves in the courts, in the media, in the army, and in politics. And the most mainstream institutions there are. Um, they've been laundering the settlements um, as kind of a almost like a new Zionism, right? Um, to So basically, I, I think it's it's not only Netanyahu, but I think the settlement, settler leaders and settlement project has become so enmeshed within mainstream Israeli society that they become legitimate and, and their speech becomes legitimized. Do you see a lot of parallels between that and the rise of the sort of... Um alt-right or or the MAGA right in the US? Yeah, I think the MAGA right, you know, it, it's, I think even before we can see the Tea Party, which was kind of like, oh, these grassroots weirdos from wherever, right? No, but they were backed by billionaires. Um, and by the way, the same billionaires are, are funding the settlers. Um, if you see like a, Kohelet, right? Kohelet are um, these two billionaires from Pennsylvania. Um, uh, I forget their names at, currently, but they're the ones who funded Trump. They are election denialists, right? And they're the biggest funders of Kohelet, which were the people behind the judicial coup. And they're funders of people like Simcha Wotman, who's the architect of the judicial coup, who's a even in Israeli terms, his settlement is not legal. Afterward, they kosherized it, but you know, even that was too extreme for Israelis to. Um, so, same billionaires who um, funded Tea Party and then MAGA are the same ones who are funding the set settlements. One thing I know you wanted to talk about was, um, you know, I, I know you've had some. Uh, you've pushed back a bit on uh, 
diaspora Jewish groups like uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. And I've, I've had people from JVP on and people from If Not Now. What's your sort of criticism of JVP? And maybe do, do you think there's a misunderstanding between the the diasporic Jewish left and the Israeli left? Um, well, I think there's, first of all, I think there's a, a, um, a, a, there's a, there are two parts where I think there's a big rift. Um, first of all, in terms of definitions, I think that um, the left anti-Zionism today and its current and its manifestations um, are not, don't really fall into an anti-Zionist category. Um, and, th- and that's one thing, right? It's, it's lacks any theological framework that anti like classic anti-Zionism has, and it kind of tethered to the Israel establishment, right? Um, people have to talk about the boon. The boon hasn't been around forever. And actually, in, in the Israeli election in 1959, a faction of the boon actually ran for the election because they realized that, you know, we didn't, we kind of, um, oppose the, the foundation of the state of Israel, but okay, it's here now, so let's make, you know, let's collaborate. Um, and then I think comes to the second and more crucial point for me as uh, personally a lifelong lifelong leftist, um, one who writes about the you know, occupation, uh, one, that's, one that is enmeshed with People were anti-occupation on the ground in Israel. Um, I think the erasure of the Israeli left um, in exchange for abstractions and and discourse about terminology, um, I think did and does a huge damage. Um, and any chance for resolution, any chance to uh, stop the violence, any chance for actually, to be honest, uh, Palestinian self-determination, right? Um, groups like, I mean, I, I won't go into groups or, or, but when you know people talk about a binational secular state as uh, they envision it, no Palestinian leader has ever called for a one state. You know, there's a f- more than a century or a century and a half of a struggle for Palestinian self-determination, right? Um, this the call for one state basically kind of eradicates that. You know, people in the states are basically, or or in Europe, saying, "Listen, your struggle was nice, but here's a new flag for you that we're, we're going to make up." Right. Second is the secular part. If you ever spend time in Israel or in Palestine, secular is the last thing people want. They want some sort of mix. I mean, I, I am secular, and, and and I am for secularism in society. Um, that is impossible in a place like Israel or Palestine. Um, and people advocating that just show that they have no um, sense of a social makeup in Israel. Um, and I think it's it's also a class issue. Israel is a sovereign nation state with, um, I, I'll talk about the, the Jewish part, which is the majority, uh, which is comprised of all social strata, right? And in that sense, Israel, if we can put the occupation in parentheses, um, is a well, it's 
or its roots are in a welfare left, you know, uh, form. Strong unions, healthcare, um, but people from working class. And I think, especially groups like JVP, or if not now, um, whose members come mostly from, you know, middle class to upper middle class, I have a hard time um, maybe picturing, you know, a, a vast Jewish populace that's working class. Um, and I think this uh, disconnection in language, disconnection in terms of solidarity with an Israeli left on the ground that's doing work, that's being marginalized, that's being attacked by the government, of journalists being attacked, right? Of journalists like Isolf why you had to go into hiding. Um, I think these disconnections, uh, that's the root of my, of my pushback against uh, these groups. Um, you know, solidarity is something, is a word that's being missed in all these um, discourse of, of definition terminologies. And I think that creates, um, you know, a huge loss for Israeli left, but also for Palestinians as well. I wanted to ask you more about the uh, the threats against journalists. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Israel Fry. Um, he's an interesting case because I believe he's from an Orthodox background, but I, I think he would view himself as politically left. He's gone into hiding after I think him and his family were attacked by uh, you know uh, settlers or you know far right yeah. Israeli activists, right? Netanyahu mob. Um... Um, and we've seen that in, um, you know, repeated attacks from ministers, uh, members of Knesset uh, against publications like, like Aretz, but not, not, not only. I mean, today, um, this uh, member of government or member of coalition, Nisim Vaturi, who's a real piece of work, you know, uh, attacked Channel 12 News, which is kind of the most mainstream uh, channel in Israel, right? Uh, he said, I think he, I'm, I'm, if I'm, this quote is not correct, but he said, I'm not surprised that the Hamas terrorists were watching Channel 12 in the tunnels, as if, you know, Channel 12 is some sort of uh, fifth column, right? Um, and again, we need to look back you know, 20 years back, um, after Netanyahu lost the 99 election to Barak, he blamed the media. Um, and he made a mission when he came back, or before he came back even, um, to fashion a media to his liking. This means not only attacking you know, journalists, not only attacking publications like Aritz, Channel 13, Channel 1, et cetera, et cetera, but also building an alternative um, monolith that's dedicated to Netanyahu and the right wing. And it started with Shedel Edelson and Israel Ayom, which was a free newspaper uh, founded by Shedel Edelson for Netanyahu specifically. Um, and in the past few years, we've seen the foundation of Channel 14, 
um, which I don't know if you have the displeasure of watching, which started as a Jewish heritage channel and slowly through intervention by communications minister, puppet communication minister, by the way, because everybody knows Netanyahu is behind. Um, Netanyahu is kind of rejiggering the whole thing, turn it into a Fox-like punditry channel, which is all about Netanyahu, all about left bashing. Um, It's all about, I think, I mean, cases are, examples are abundant. Um, But, you know, it's, it's where people compares left it to Nazis. It's places where they joke about the hostages. It's places that, you know, call any, you know, left politician or traitors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think I, I is- was going to, if I could real quick, I, I mean, <laughs> the attacks, I think people don't realize the attacks um, are extending beyond media onto hostage uh, hostages families. So, you know, recently, and I know he's not part of the, the government in Israel, people should note this, but, uh, you know, someone like Jonathan Pollard, who is a public figure, came out and said recently, uh, you know, if I were in charge, uh, I would tell the hostage families to shut up or else. Uh, there is these people like Pollard, who I would say represent the extreme right in Israel, uh, that basically have, uh, you know, screw the families. You know, our suffering is more important. Uh do you think that do you think that's also happening? Um, it's I, I'll say first of all, yeah, beyond John John Pollard, who spent years in in prison, and Israel did you know uh, whatever it could to release him, and now he's you know, but he was a piece of shit anyway. Sorry, um, but it, it, it's it's much more endemic than that. Um, part of the reason why the host hostage families are being attacked, not by Pollard, but by people in, in Channel 14, like Inon Magal and others, is because many survivors and many families are from the kibbutzim near Gaza. These kibbutzim, by and large, vote left. Um, I don't have the numbers, but, you know, and in, in, in one kibbutz, maybe Beri or maybe another, you know, Meretz, which didn't even cross threshold, got 50% of the vote, right? It's kibbutzim are founded with communist, socialist communes, basically, right? That um, so their concern is politically that giving um, giving airtime to hostage families would mean that they criticize Netanyahu or his policies. Um, I know there was in in the beginning um, even. Some attack them of being part of the anti, you know, judicial coup movement, right? And they're going to use their tragedy to further, you know, uh, the attack on Netanyahu, and it, it, it's all very, very, very cynical. Um, and that's the... it's, it, by the way, it's all very similar to someone like I'm in Florida right now, so we yeah. have DeSantis over here saying, you know, we need to get rid of the. Uh, the woke fifth columnists. I mean, it sounds like there's a parallel kind of thing happening with the Israeli right attacking Israeli leftists and saying, oh, they're they're part of the woke mob. They're trying to destroy Israel from within. It seems like that's sort of uh, 
conspiratorial mindset also exists on the Israeli right. There is, and it's 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 you know, it's that it's been fostered for for so long. I think what Netanyahu's legacy, you know, because Netanyahu, even people on the left praise not praise them, but uh, commending them for not never going into a war that he didn't need to and making it short. And actually, I I, I read now this morning that there is uh, discussions about a long ceasefire, um, that all the hostages will come back, and that means Israel will release thousands of Palestinian prisoners. Um, Netanyahu is a, is, a, is a scared politician, and he only thinks about his, you know, one-step political survival. So that's why he never uh, made any great political decision in his life. And that's why he never annexed the West Bank after Pompeo and Trump said, here, here you go. Um, what Netanyahu's legacy is in terms of politics, and we see that now, is for 15 years, every position of power, every institution, every role, professional role, he hauled, hauled out and he put in yes-men that were unprofessional, that their only skill was bootlicking Netanyahu. We've seen this in the aftermath of October 7th, when um, civil society has basically keeping the country afloat um, in terms of aid, in terms of volunteering, in terms of fundraising for soldiers in the front line who got called up who doesn't don't have vests or don't have socks you know um in the media i think you know every time a, a government official comes on cnn or on on fox you know uh, israeli citizens need to fix the damage that that they did um netanyahu has really hauled out Israel's political institutions for its own gain. Um, and now it's backfired in, in, in a big way. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a... Uh, I don't know, I saw a poll that there was a, a 4% support of Netanyahu in the Israeli public, right? Um, which, on the one hand, it's good because people are, you know, are, have had it completely. Not that it was high before, the bad thing is that he knows that the end of the war means that of end of his reign. And that means now he'll play for time, like he did in his trials, uh, which can become really ugly and violent really quick. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the, the horror we've seen in Gaza um, are partly due to that, you know, it's, it's whether you agree that Hamas needs to be dismantled or not. Um, I think most from what I read and, and most people agree that's not the way to do it. Blind bombardment of Gazan infrastructure, um, more than 12,000 dead. Um, I was and, just reading a piece. I think you retweeted it, a piece in the Jewish Daily Forward. Yes. Uh, that was arguing, um, I forget the author's name, but uh, it was arguing that this could actually, you know, further radicalize, you know, Gazans that before October 7th, uh, and even in the aftermath of it, were very upset 
with the Moss or were dissatisfied with it, but now they're they're focused on the Israeli bombing. So that could further radicalize a lot of Gazans. Yeah, I don't know if it's um the, the political um leanings of Gazans, I'm not gonna get into because I don't really know. What I do know from an Israeli standpoint is that more and more signs, and, and this is I read from journalists like uh, Shlomi Eldar, who's been covered Gaza for decades before the withdrawal. Um, and sign, and signs are, are getting there that um, Hamas will continue to rule Gaza the day after a ceasefire, um, partly due to you know, a systematic failure of over a decade of mishandling by Netanyahu and his government, and partly by um, this rush to vengeance in war that, you know, I, I read some statistic that, you know, for every Hamas fighter, Israel killed four citizens, right? That's beyond the, the human toll and horrific carnage that's politically dumb, right? And, you know, that that's not a way to build a coalition to dismantle uh, a group that needs to be dismantled, um, that needs to vanish from political life, because until it's, you know, uh, and until its power is, is being relinquished, um, there's no real hope for a, a sustainable future in Israel or Palestine. So in terms of, of Gazan being radicalized, I, I can't say if it will be the case. What I can say is that um, as long as there's a divide within Palestinian leadership, um, as long as the Israelis who have lived e this trauma, um, and I think even people on the right kind of realize after October 7th that Hamas is not the Palestinian Authority. Um, and I think if, if there's any positive note to that, to this, is that um, Israelis are realizing that, um, you know, Palestinians are not Hamas, and Hamas is a force that's you know, it's a Iran proxy, um, or you know, at, at this point, it's it's kind of a fully blown, uh, you know, military wing of of, of Iran's interest, right? Um, and Iran's interests are not sustainable. Peace uh, in the Middle East. Um, so, in that regard, I think Israel's fail, Netanyahu's failure, um, will re reverberate for years to come. Uh, Real quick in that regard, I guess, I guess what I meant is I, I feel like the, the Netanyahu status quo to my understanding and the sort of doctrine of Netanyahu was, you know, we control the height of the flame in Gaza. There isn't going to be a two state. Uh, we're not going to have a peace process. And, and to me, from the way I see it, I think it's just going to become a rinse and repeat cycle if that status quo is upheld. In other words, there's always going to be some kind of Palestinian resistance as long as there's no two-state option on the table. Right. No, I, I completely agree. Um, and th at this point, um, I 
don't think it's so much up to Netanyahu because he's just going to, um, again, stick to his seat as long as he can. I think it's more important and much more, um, the consequences are much more grave of the next, the election next year in the States. Uh, Biden, you know, I, I think Israelis, even on the right, who call them demented, who call them Iran lover, after October 7th, they realized, you know, this is, he was the only leader to emerge, basically, for Israelis. Netanyahu, you know, hid in his office and made, cal you know, political calculations about how many seats he can get after the war is over. Uh, Biden clearly said that he's, you know, forced two states. Um, and, you know, like other White House says, how White House in the past um, have a did statement, but never implemented in practice, never put pressure. Um, I think if Biden would to um, win a re-election, I think there will be a lot of pressure on Israel to finally concede. Um, you know, people talk about conditioning aid and as if it's some sort of ideological stance, but we've seen that already it's implemented. Um, I think a few thousands of M16s shipment was delayed because um, it was going to the settlements, right? Um, I think public opinion in the US, if it's navigated towards a place of holding the White House accountable and promoting um, real solutions, um, I think that could really, really change the map. Um, I think whomever comes after Netanyahu, Gantz, for instance, Benny Gantz, who's you know in line to be if he, if he's Netanyahu falls, he will capitulate to Americans and will basically take the American line. I don't don't think that will manifest in a two states, but I do think it will can, not well, but can uh, result in some sort of um, extended autonomy um, under strict international supervision. Um, and, you know, it, it's not ideal, but it, it's a beginning. Uh, but if Trump gets elected next year, um, all bets are off. Um, and again, I, I think Biden is, is, the, is the last of his breed and old school kind of Israel supporter. Uh, you can't find it in the U.S. anymore. You definitely can't find that in Europe. Um, and if Trump gets elected, um, yeah, all bets are off. Before we start closing out, I wanted to ask you about Haritz. Um, you know, I, I have people that will, will disagree with Haritz on some things. I have Palestinian friends that will like it occasionally, and then other times they don't agree with all the articles. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with every article I've seen published in Haritz, but I think it's very important uh, that this publication exists. I'm not sure our understanding of Israel um, and its political scene would uh, be something that Americans could understand without a publication like that. And I wanted to talk about what exactly are the attacks happening 
against Haaretz right now because I see them get attacked by people like Ron DeSantis here. He says, oh, if it's from Haaretz, I don't trust that. They're far left. Mm -hmm. uh, you see people like Ben Shapiro attack Haaretz. And of course, there's this communications minister that's attacking in Israel right now. What is happening? Why is this publication being attacked so much? Um, well, for yeah, um, I think coming from all sides, I know uh, Ben Shapiro um, and Jordan Peterson actually really disliked an article I wrote six months ago. Um, and they made you're on the right track if you're making them angry. Well, uh, um, I think the. the I think uh, Ben Shapiro's literal tweet was uh, hard to the flaming garbage, um, which I think we use afterwards for market marketing collateral. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, it's again going back to the reframing of um, what pro-Israel means, right? Um, if pro-Israel used to be, again, a really, really broad... And the Jewish community with really kind of uh, faint Zionism, right? Putting, donating a, a quarter to Israel or I stand with Israel um, and to the American mainstream, it was the only democracy in the world and, you know, two-state solution, if it's home, Jewish homeland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Pro-Israel today is pro-Netanyahu, pro-right-wing, pro-settler, right? Um, and also pro-Orthodox, um, in that sense, religious. Um, I think the Aretz, and I don't agree with everything that's uh, published there. Sometimes I, you know, I look at my own stuff and I disagree with it, but um, represents everything that Netanyahu despises and his emissaries, right? It is a place that... Um, I don't think Americans know how little is mainstream Israelis watching TV, watching their, uh, um, you know, NBC equivalent, know that the carnage that's going on in Gaza, right? Um, I think the media has uh, deliberately or not, I mean, some deliberately, some, um, there's an obfuscation going on. Um, I think Aretz, by featuring you know, voices from Gaza by uh, focus, like featuring death stall, by featuring the carnage, uh, by featuring voices that are reformed Jews. That you know, I think that kind of diversity of 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 thought and not having an ideological, you know, I mean, I mean really, there there are columnists where I passionately disagree with, um, and I think that is exactly what Netanyahu. Um, is wary, wary of. I think that's why Netanyahu is focused, put a lot of his focus in the past 10 years on the media and quashing every institution that can be like Haaretz. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's a joke, of course, that, you know, if Netanyahu would have stayed in the States, he would become the... Uh, Senator from Florida, right? And uh, he's basically the, the 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 Israeli senator for the Republican Party, right? Um, and I think these uh, political 
small-minded people like Ron DeSantis. Um, I think these people, well, he's, you know, in terms of Israel, he's very mindless. He's very ignorant. Um, so everything Netanyahu dishes out to him, he'll eat up. Um, ben Shapiro is a bit more sinister because I think he's smarter. Um, and I think that Haaretz, again, it, it it kind of offers a, a much more complex view of Israel. Right. Um, that he I mean, to- I, I'll say this for my part. I mean, I do think there's a night and day difference between a publication like Haaretz uh, and say another Israeli publication like um, the Jerusalem Post. I mean, it's a night and day difference for me at well, least. Jerusalem Post. Jerusalem Post. Um, it's editor in chief um, was never in journalism. He was an online influ- online activist, and I think like six months ago they ran a poll. Um, question, the question was whether like retali- retaliatory programs against Palestinian civilians is okay or not. So. Jerusalem Post is a rag, um, and it's always been. I mean, not always been, but I think in the past, you know, 10 years or so. Um, I think, uh, you know, the most popular magazine in Israel, Ynet, it's, okay. it's, you know, it's a kind of the Daily Mail. It's it's your hysterical uncle that's, you know, texts you at night, oh, there's a fire, but actually, oh, it's actually, uh, you know, I just turned the lights on. Um, I think Oz does is the only real newspaper in Israel. Um, and I think that's why there's so much focus and animus towards it. What exactly were the threats being directed at Haaretz by the communications minister? Yeah. I mean, was there talk of, I guess, like cutting off <laughs> that's uh, also Haaretz not- journalists? Go on. No, no, that, that's also, I mean, first of all, Netanyahu hasn't given a press, press conference in, I don't even remember. Um, and he doesn't give interviews to Israeli media. Um, he gives interviews to CNN, Fox, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, because he knows that American journalists won't ask him the tough questions Israeli media would. Um, he had a pre- press conference now. He had to, um, but he let he only let you know his 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 buddies and his insiders, you know ask questions. Um, I, I was going to say, I keep hearing this joke from some of my Jewish friends. They say, well, Netanyahu uh, does interviews with the American press because they're not going to ask him why he hasn't resigned yet. You know? yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I mean, um, I think American media needs to, in that regard, um, I, I know I know America, some American Journalists and and pundits and anchors have been better um, at telling the the Israeli-Palestinian story over the years. I think people who have access to Netanyahu should do a a better job um, up front. Um, In terms of uh, the threats of of the communication minister, it's it's not... I I guess, what was the exact... Oh, I mean, Haaretz is subscription-based, right? So there's nothing, it doesn't get any ad money, so it doesn't can't pressure advertisers. What he was threatening is to cut subscriptions for ins- government institutions, right? So if, I don't know, the State Department, like the minister, the foreign ministry gets 
on how it's subscription, they'll cancel it. That's what, that's what he can do. Um, it's again, this is very similar to Donald Trump saying, I'm going to punish people for their disloyalty. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, but I mean, the communication minister is a joke anyway. He's he's not a very smart person. Um, and he's only trying to do Netanyahu's bidding. And obviously, Netanyahu is much more talented than he is. Um, it so sounds like these threats are kind of like empty air, but they're kind of a symbolic attack in a way. Yeah, it, it's a joke. Um, you know, the way Netanyahu has refashioned the media landscape in Israel is not. Um, and it, it's, it's. I've been working on this big piece about, about the media in Israel. Um, and one uh, interview, I had an interview with somebody who said, you know, People, the the judicial judicial coup couldn't happen without the media coup, and I think the media coup has basically been successful. Um, I don't think people realize how much Israel, the media landscape, is limited and is influenced by Netanyahu and the settler movement. That's uh, that's really an interesting observation because. Uh... So I I have uh, I'm Italian American so I keep up with Italian politics and oh, I think um, why well, the reason yeah. the reason I brought it up is because you know in the 90s uh, Berlusconi uh, before he was prime minister he really consolidated the whole media landscape in Italy before uh, taking political power so it, it sounds like there's at least an issue with um, media being consolidated by Netanyahu or, or reshaped, uh, maybe not exactly one-to-one -one the way Berlusconi did it, but, you know, a sort of strategy at work. Yeah, I think it's uh, Netanyahu and the settler movement working in tandem. You know, Israelis don't know what's going on in the West Bank. They have no idea because they don't see it on the news because editors are pressured. Um, you know, uh, there are no no cameras in the, you know, no no journalists in the West Bank. They don't know what's going on. Um, you know, it, it was during the the uh, anti judicial coup protest, people started to get a glimpse, right? Because suddenly you have Smotrich as finance minister in Bengvil, so it's not even ideological. They saw, okay, these people are attacking democratic institutions, and then they kind of connected the dots between that and the settlements, and there was an increased focus on settlements. Um. The test is will be after the war is over. Well, you know, will the same scrutiny come back? Um, and people chanting, "Where were you in Hawara?" You know, will these? I mean, will there be pressure on on the settlers to? You know, I know America. I know the you know Blinken. As I, I don't think I've heard it from any other Secretary of State, but you know the uptick in settler violence even before the war and now, uh, it's not sustainable. So we'll see what happens with that. There were just two more questions I wanted to ask you. And the first one is, um, I want to word this carefully because it's not what I'm saying, but I've seen other people say this. And I think I've seen some people tweet it at you. Um, I know that there are some people on the left that will accuse Israeli leftists of not truly being against the occupation. And they'll often say, you're only interested in how to better manage the occupation. I was wondering if you wanted to address uh, people that make that accusation. 
Um, I mean, personally, or or, or well, I, or, I think you, I think you're you're very clearly against the occupation from what I've read. But that accusation that gets thrown at Israeli leftists, I was hoping you could address it. Um. Well, I think it's um. You know the 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 idea of managing the conflict, managing the occupation. Um, I don't think. I mean, there's certainly forces in Israel that I think do want to just manage the occupation, yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think it's it's the left. I think, uh, you know, people like Bennett, right, um, and this new generation of settlers who, you know, launder language, um, and like managing the conflict is better than like. Will keep Palestinians oppressed forever, right? It's like it sounds better. It's, um, I think there is, and this is, I think, you know, it's 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 a new generation of of young activists, um, who a lot of them don't have a sense of history. Um, you know, the Second Intifada after Camp David, the failure. Uh, happened 23 years ago, right? There's a whole generation of Israelis who know nothing about peace process, who know nothing about, um, you know, even even the word occupation, you know, but we've seen uh, the Ministry of Education trying to erase the green line, right? Um, for a generation, Israelis, the, the vocabulary to express, you know, a, a solution has been erased. Um, I think 2014, the government passed uh, the Nakba law, right? Even teaching, even saying the word Nakba is prohibited in classrooms. Um, so one, one of the things I've often heard from different people that I've spoken to is that um, many young Israelis that are buying up maybe uh, cheaper properties just because they, they want to be able to live affordably don't even realize they may be buying properties that are past the green line. Is that of course. okay? Okay, that's, that's correct, and that's again. I think there's a um, if we if we go back to vocabulary class issue. I think here, you know, going up in the edu Israeli education system, which prepares you to do the army and not go to college, um, the expectations that young Israelis um, will come and articulate everything that uh, an American activist learned through books is uh, far-fetched. Um, and, you know, I mean, I am, as my writing uh, implied, I'm against occupation. Um, I'm not for managing. I'm not for shrinking. I'm not for eliminating not only for uh, Palestinians, but uh, for my, the safety of my family, right? Um, to have a real, whatever, normal sovereign state, right? Um, but I think the, the, there, there's an expectation, right? Um, the millions of people took to the streets and called for democracy, you know, they might not have meant occupation. They might not have, you know, apartheid. They might have whatever, right? But people have a yearning. And, and when we see mass movements of people from all walks of life, um, 
call for something, even though it's rudimentary, even though it's not perfect. Um, instead of showing solidarity, I think a lot of people who you know criticize them for you know mind the, the occupation, instead of that, they could offer solidarity. They you know help this populace kind of find its vocabulary, refine its vocabulary, right? Um, and I think a lot of people are feeling isolated because of it. A lot of Israelis on the left, even a lot of anti-occupation activists uh, who are feeling really alienated from the quote-unquote radical left here. Um, sometimes I don't know how the people define the word radical, to, you know, um, because in Israel it's defined by action, right? Uh, people who go to anti-occupation protests on the fence, that's radical, right? Um, I feel alienated because of that. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my long way of saying that. I don't think a real leftist uh, is advocating to manage the conflict. And I think if you had a poll today, whether Israelis want a solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, most of them would say yes, and most of them would know how to do it, right? And most of them, know, most people don't know how to do it for the past century. So I think it's a bit presumptuous also to, for, for a faction of, of the uh, international left to say, here's a, a pre-made program we thought up in, in, you know, an academic panel or a think tank. Well, hey, Itan, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, they can follow me on, I'll put my Twitter because I'm, you know, I'm freelance and Twitter, I guess, is our public, real publication, unfortunately, uh, with Elon. Um, so you can follow me at Eitan, Eitan23. So it's E-T-A-N, E-T-A-N 23. Um, that's where you can follow me in my recent work. Thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Sure. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eton Nietzschein. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid.
I'm not the trace. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.